6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 1 through 2, verse 7. To the kings of the Hittites and Aram, while building his own force of 12,000 horses, that's a bunch, and 1,400 chariots. The choiceness of his horses will be used as a standard in some of our discussion. We'll get into that as we go here. He also imported wives, uh-oh, from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Phoenicia, and from the Hittites. His harem included 700 wives, can you imagine that? And 300 concubines. His building, his building exploits included the temple, of course, and his elaborate palace complex. You don't hear much about that, but that's important which included a separate dwelling for the daughter of Pharaoh, his first politically consequential of his wives. And you say, gee, it's kind of a strange guy to be giving us a lesson on marriage because he went downhill. He started off great with wisdom and as a great leader, but his propensity for women is one of the things that Bathsheba started to caution him about in Proverbs 31. And uh, uh, that was his downfall because he did not finish well. And uh, that doesn't negate the understanding, the experience he had in his prime up front. His throne was of ivory overlaid with gold. No one valued silver as much in the days of Solomon. The law of the king, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 17, instructs the king not to multiply horses, wives, silver, or gold. I'm always amazed at the order. Apparently, multiplying horses was worse than multiplying wives, but whatever. I wouldn't make too much of that, but I think that's amusing. It was Solomon's love for foreign women that led to idolatry and dissolution of the kingdom. So that's the bad news at the end. But don't let that negate the lessons that we have here by the Holy Spirit for our own marriages. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this jaded connoisseur declares all those things as vanity. That's in Solomon's own hand in his, his uh, 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 final book called Ecclesiastes. Now, Solomon has a number of identities that I think might be useful for you to understand as you understand your Bible. First of all, Solomon wasn't his name he was born with. Nathan named him when he was born. Shalomo um, uh, uh, was his royal name. Nathan named him Jedidiah, Yedidai, actually, but we always forget that the J by Germans were especially by a Y. Anyway, it's Yedidiah. That was his name at birth. But his royal name was Shlomo. Uh, Shlomo. And uh, Lemuel apparently was a name, a pet name, a secret name, a private name that Bathsheba used of her firstborn son. First, He was the firstborn that survived. The first one died. The firstborn one that survived with Solomon. That's why he had the throne. And the second surviving son of Bathsheba was, a, was not Nathan the prophet, but another Nathan that ends up being from, from whom we get the, the genealogy of Mary and so forth. But anyway, uh, 
Something you also need to know, he had another title that was equivalent to his name. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but always referred to himself as the preacher, the Koheleth. So he, that, that's a title that's associated with Solomon. Another title that few people know about, unless they've really done some serious study, he had another term of Agor. That's a term in Hebrew that means the collector. What was it that Solomon collected besides horses and wives? He collected riddles, what he called dark sayings. One of his hobbies, apparently, he was obviously quite literary, but one of his hobbies was to collect riddles or dark sayings, hidden messages, uh, uh, passages with hidden meanings. And you don't understand that until you study very carefully the first half a dozen verses of Proverbs 30 because he uses that title, and hidden in that text is a phenomenal messianic prophecy. I won't take the time to get it in here. I'll just alert you to that, to be aware of that, that Solomon had an ability and a propensity to have hidden messages and things. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Song of Songs may be understandable at several different levels, if you will. Okay. But... Uh, I had to throw this in here. I thought it was kind of fun. King David and King Solomon lived very wicked lives with half a hundred concubines and quite too many wives. But when old age came, kept creeping on, they both were filled with qualms. So Solomon wrote the Proverbs and David wrote the Psalms. Anyway, there's another personage that you should be aware of because I think it helps illuminate our understanding of Song of Songs. And that's a gal by the name of Abishag. Abishag would seem circumstantially to fit some of the circumstances we find in the Song of Songs. She was a beautiful young woman who spent her youth working in the fields and vineyards and was selected to lie beside King David and serve his needs during his dying years. But don't jump to conclusions here. She came from an area called Shunem, presumably in the Galilee, and a Shunemite and Shulamite are very closely related. Uh, attempts to locate the actual historical site have been have proven fruitless. But the main point, the text is very clear that her virginity was not taken away by the elderly King David. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 4, it was clear that her ministry to him was completely a matter of physical care, not sensual pleasure. We need to understand that. Solomon was part of the household in those days, and he became deeply attached to her. How much so? When his brother Adonijah tried to get his mother's approval for taking Abishag to wife, since he had lost the kingdom to Solomon. See, his older brother got the kingdom. He wanted Abishag. Solomon was enraged when he found that out and had Benaniah, his executioner, kill Adonijah, who's technically his brother, right? Whoa, they played rough. Abishag was not a lady of the courts. She was a country girl, exactly as we infer Shulamite is in the Song of Songs. And uh, she worked in the fields under the hot sun and was not used to the expensive clothes or the exotics of nobility. So she would seem to fit the description we find in Song of Songs. And uh, she is also a natural beauty, as I'm blessed with with my wife, Nan. Well, let's take a look now. Let's get into the text, starting at verse 2 on the first idol, which is the wedding day reflections. And... Uh, the first reflection is preparing for the wedding feast in the first, uh, uh, the next seven verses. Then we'll have a reflection at the wedding feast and finally at the bridal chamber. But let's take this first one to start with here. 
starting at verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Boy, this starts out right up front here. Now, kiss, you know, the father of the prodigal son kissed him, but on the neck. Forgiveness and restoration was implied by that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about kisses of his mouth. This is overtly, clearly, unabashedly sensual here. It's on the mouth. It's a kiss of intimacy. So let's call it, let's see, see it for what it is. The word kisses and wine also turn out in the Hebrew to be a phonetic a little word play going on here. Because kiss and wine, kiss or kisses are neshika and the other one is shaka. And if you pronounce that properly, they sound very similar. And the shaka is to drink or to give drink or irrigate, drink water, cause to drink water. So the, the relationship between kisses and wine will be more explicit when we get to chapter 8, uh, the last chapter of the uh, Song of Songs. So the kisses appear to be a yearning for foreplay. That's what we're sensing here. Now, sensual love is initiated by the man. It is the husband's leadership. And that will come be made very clear in some of the subsequent reflections. It's interesting, Christ initiates his love toward us. Our capacity to love is based on his love for us, we're told in 1 John 4, 19. Now, the other thing we're going to see all through here, we don't want to lose sight of sexual love is to be enjoyed. And wine here is used as a symbol of celebration. And Proverbs 31 deals with it the same way. She sees her husband's sexual responses to her as better than any human celebration on earth is the flavor of the text. And there's another passage that we're going to refer to frequently in the New Testament I want, to keep, I want you to keep in front of your thoughts as we go forward here. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where it declares that marriage is honorable to all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This is a key point for every one of us who might have some hesitancy in enjoying sex. The bed undefiled. The word bed there in the Greek is koita. The coitus is a, refers to sexual intercourse. What it's talking about here is sexual intercourse in marriage. God has such a high view of sex in marriage, of sex in general, that, it, that he wants it protected from lust and abuse outside the marriage. So we need to understand the contrast. Most of us tend to shudder a little bit when you start talking about sex, that sort of thing, because of the abuse in our culture. God's preference is for it to be enjoyed in the marriage. Well, we'll talk more about that as we go, of course. Let's pick it up at verse 3 of chapter 1. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. She's talking about him in this passage. At the banquet, the entire palace will be sprinkled with perfume. All through this passage, all through the Song of Songs, spices of different kind, fragrance of di fragrances of different kind, are ways of expressing the atmosphere of celebration, of enjoyment. And so the, uh, they're literally that way, but they're also uh, uh, metaphorically that way, uh, ref ref both ways, referring to uh, a pickup here. And it's interesting how our prayers are synonymous with fragrance. All through the scripture, back, the, the golden altar in the tabernacle, the, the, the incense there was emblematic of our prayers. 
So our prayers to God are a fragrance from, for, for, to Him, if you will. So another question to ask yourself, how does your lover smell? You know, smells are important. We're going to see that all through here. And we may joke about it, but it's important. It's important. And we'll talk about that further as we go on. Thy name is as ointment. The name refers to character, temperament, inward spirit. A good name is better than precious ointment. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. She continues, draw me and we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. The word does two different words love here. We suffer from the poverty of English. The word love here, dodim, is the sexual kind of love. It's roughly equivalent to the Greek term eros. You know, in Greek you have different words for love. There's at least four of them. But the point is, love here is, uh, the love word, the Hebrew word here is the sensual, sexual overtone. And the other word love, though, the upright love thee, is a different word in the Hebrew. In the English you don't see it, but in the Hebrew you do. It's the verb, or the, the word, ahab. And it's translated the word love 169 times, and a couple of others. I'd like to examine this a little more closely because it's going to show you something about the Hebrew language that's really important to understand. In the Hebrew, the ahab there is, um, remember that all languages flow towards Jerusalem. All the nations that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Not only Hebrew, but Arabic, Sanskrit, Chinese, whatever. All nations that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Um, obviously English, Latin, Greek, Cyrillic, they go from left to right. So understand when I say the first letter here in Ahab is an Aleph, okay? It's the first one because you start on the right working left, right? Okay. The word Aleph is the first letter of, tw of the 22 that make up the Hebrew alphabet. The thing that's fascinating is that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is not only phonetic, like most languages would have, their alphabet's phonetic, helps you pronounce the word. But in Hebrew, the letter also carries meaning. It's a semim. It carries, it carries meaning. The Aleph, since it's the first letter, can represent the first, alpha and omega, that sort of thing, um, first. It also, thus also can mean, since he's first, he's the leader, it suggests a leadership, and also strength. So first, leader, strength are related concepts that are carried by the Aleph. So far, so good. Now, the, the last letter of the, the, uh, the word we're going to explore here is Beth. We would think of it as a B, but in Hebrew it's a Bet. And it, the, that word tends to mean a house or home. Bet. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Bethel is the house of God. And it goes on like that. There's many Beths, what have you. And it gives you a feeling for what, what it all means. Okay. The uh, Jericho is Bet Yarah, the house of the, uh, the moon god. But that's another whole study. Okay, so if you take the Aleph and the Bet together, that gives you the leader of the house. That makes sense. Ab, an Aleph and a Beth together, is the leader of the house, which is whom? The father. That's the word for father. 
Abba means father. It's a diminutive father. Okay, so what happens when you take the Aleph and the Beth and you take a hey? Now, the hey is like a breath. Remember in uh, My Fair Lady or uh, the, the play Pygmalion that was taken from George Bernard Shaw has a, 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 a Henry Higgins teaches Eliza Doolittle to breathe. Hartford, Hereford, Hampshire, hurricanes ha hardly happen. That was her, to get her to breathe properly. And so the he is the breath. Well, the he in the Hebrew uh, alphabet is a breath, a he. Some people think it originally represented an open window or something, but the point is a he, a breath, it's the, it's also implies the spirit. When Abraham, his name is changed to Abraham, God simply puts a hey in the middle of the thing. When Abraham gets the spirit of God, he has a different name and it, his life changes. His wife, Sarai, gets a hey in it, which may, gives her the spirit. Just adding a hey, hey. To each, in each case, you're just adding a hey to the life. So there, it goes on like this. So if you have the aleph and the bet and you put a hey in the middle of it, you get the essence of the father. That's the essence of the father. What is the essence of the Father? Love. That word is the Hebrew word for love. What I'm trying to get across isn't just to understand Ahab. It's for you to get sensitive to the fact that the Hebrew language is designed in a way that no other language on the earth matches. That these are elements of meaning. They're, semi, they're not only phonemes, they're semimes. They carry meaning. And the... Uh, a Hebrew department at the University of Arizona pointed out to me that if they teach the kids what those 22 letters imply, and to do that, you really have to learn how they were originally written, not the way they are today. But if you can do that, if you master that, you can read about 80% of Hebrew because Hebrew words are built on a three-letter foundation. And if you know what that foundation is, you can usually infer pretty much what the word is referring to. And so... It's a very different kind of language. And uh, we now know that the Torah, the five books of Moses, were not only given to Moses by God, they were given to him letter by letter. There are mathematical properties of the Torah that will disappear if you take one letter out of them. And so that's a whole other aspect. They begin to get respect for this, this book that we have. And now we have Song of Songs in front of us that we're going to try to understand what's going on here. Three words for love. Dodim, which is the sexual word. The root word means to carouse and what have you. The ahav, which is equivalent to the Greek agape, roughly. A commitment of the will. Not emotion, of the will. It's an unconditional commitment, not an emotional response. We, that's where we get ourselves all messed up. And raia, which is equivalent to phileo, sort of, but it's also used to mean my darling. That shows all through this passage also. So we're down to verse 4. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love, that dod, if you will, more than wine, the upright love, the hob, the upright ahab thee. Okay? So draw me. Unless you draw me, invite me, reach to me, I can't come. But if you draw me, I will run. Another desire to be drawn, pulled, and felt by love itself. And that is analogous, if you will, to John 15. We'll deal with that in a later session. Before the king became her lover, she acknowledged him as her lord. Get that, that's important. Before the king became her lover, she acknowledged him as her lord. Wow, that's interesting. 
Intimacy requires commitment as a prelude in the marriage and also with our, with our Lord. Sexual love, daughter, eros, is only be practiced within the concept of a hob or agape, commitment love. Otherwise, it is merely lust. That's the difference between lust and love, that the daughter is to be practiced within the concept of a hob, commitment love. Agape is a commitment love. Now, by the way, are you still holding hands with him? I'm not talking about your wife, now I'm talking about him. Interesting. Or other things or priorities that are, are you clinging, that keeping you from that intimacy with him or that intimacy with your wife? These are issues that are going to be confronted all the way through here. She says, to describe herself, she says, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Now, black is used of skin, hair color, never of race, by the way. Don't get confused here. She's dark because she's been in the sun a lot. She's very, very suntan. The tents of Kedar, the black tents of the Bedouins, were made of black goat skins and hair. So to them, this was attractive, if you follow me. Kedar, of course, is a term used, it's a tribal name, but it also stands for opulence because the name Kedar involves wordplay with the root to be dark and black. That, that word black, there's a double tone here, not just the color, but also it, it signifies opulence, strangely enough. Okay. And the curtains of Solomon. The curtains are the sides of a tent. It's used that way of the tabernacle in Exodus and elsewhere. Now she says, I am black but comely. And who's she talking to? A group called, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Now the daughters of Jerusalem is a term all through this song that seems to represent some kind of chorus. It's sort of a foil to the Shulamite and, the, and to the audience. It's a way of representing the social milieu that this is taking place in. It's sort of like the woman that accompanied Jephthah's daughter in the morning, and, or the women of Bethlehem who come out to meet, greet Naomi, if you recall, in, in the chapter 2 of, of, um, of the, um, or chapter 1, I guess it is, of Ruth. They represent the social milieu in which the lovers, both of them, move. It sort of answers the need for public testimony or public validation. But in, in, in terms of the opera, it's a chorus that interacts with the lovers. She says, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. She's not, again, it's not race, it's just excessive suntan, if you will. My mother's children were angry with me, they made me keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. So her stepbrothers gave her all the chores to do, but she didn't have an opportunity to look after herself, is the flavor of what she's saying here. Mine own vineyard, if you will. My own feminine beauty and so forth. She failed to maintain her appearance. Apparently didn't need to because our shepherd king is going to fall in love with her as it is. And that seems to be her only regret. There is no reason for a Christian not to take care of themselves is a suggestion here terms of application. During courtship, didn't we all take special pains to look our best? We had a date that night. Didn't we go the extra mile to make sure we had a care cut and make sure that we had sharp, freshly pressed, whatever, okay? Why is it that we don't do that now? Why is that a priority for us up until the wedding? And why is it that we tend to say, oh, we kick back and relax from that point on? Are we cheating our partner? The word cosmos, 
means, in the Greek, it's a word meaning to bring order out of chaos, cosmos. It's the root term for cosmetics, to bring order out of chaos. I'll just leave that with you as a thought. Anyway, this reminds her of her lover posing as a simple shepherd, concealing his true identity. And when we come into our Lord, to the company of our Lord, we too should be overwhelmed by our inadequacy. I'm in the middle of doing a study on the fear of God. And boy, that's another concept that's absent from our Christian culture. It's something that's left our vocabulary. Years ago, you could speak of someone as God-fearing. You don't use that term anymore. Even within a Christian body, we tend to presume a familiarity that tends to hide the majesty that we're dealing with, the awesomeness of God. We are to tremble. We are to tremble. Okay, verse 7. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? And so, saying, where can I find you at work? She desires his proximity. When she says turneth aside, the term there actually means as a veiled one, like either a married woman or a prostitute would be veiled. So we see her confronted with the shepherd king. That's a term we're very comfortable with because it is, of course, messianic also. Because our king is indeed a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, according to John 10. Our suffering Savior, Psalm 22, says the same thing. He's the great shepherd in Hebrew 13 and the living shepherd in Psalm 23. And he's the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5.4, as the exalted sovereign in Psalm 24. Just as we have the good shepherd, great shepherd, and chief shepherd in the New Testament, we have in the Psalm, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, the shepherd Psalms. So that concept we don't have to embellish. I think most of us have a, an instinctive comfort with recognizing the Messiah as a shepherd king in, several, in three different specific dimensions. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.